Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 149, King Oswiu, A Gathering Storm. Members, keep an eye on your feed because it should be updated soon with an episode on Anglo-Saxon marriage, bride prices, and some of the weird things that happened and continued to happen into the Victorian era in relation to marriage. So stay on the lookout for that. All right. Let's get you back into the mindset of the storyline, since we've been talking quite a bit about cultural matters for the last three weeks. So, in late 655, following his victory at the Windwade, King Oswiu occupied and ruled northern Mercia, and thus now ruled over an additional 7,000 households according to Bede. Consider how much power that was conferring upon the king. We're talking about 7,000 hides of land. Think about how many churls and thanes now answered to him, and how much food rent he would now command, in addition to all the holdings that he had in Bernicia, and all the tributes that he was collecting from sub-kings. Now, he did allow King Penda's son, King Peda, to rule southern Mercia, and thus rule over the 5,000 families who lived there. And as you might remember, King Peda had a long history with Oswiu and his family. He was a personal friend of Oswiu's son, Alfrith. He had converted at Oswiu's and his son's suggestion, and he married one of Oswiu's daughters. King Peda was quite literally family, and in most families, that would be a good thing. But King Oswiu had already murdered his own cousin, and also dethroned, and also might have murdered, his nephew. This was a dodgy family to marry into, but at least his father-in-law would let him keep his southern throne following Mercia's catastrophic loss in battle. And given the fact that Oswiu's son, Egric, was held as a hostage prior to the Battle of the Windwade, it does make me wonder if perhaps Peta's rule over southern Mercia was secured in a hostage exchange. But whatever the case, the line of Penda was still ruling over at least part of Mercia. Well, it was for a few months. The thing is that King Peda had married Oswiu's daughter, and that is a bloodline you should probably keep a close eye on. Definitely closer than Peda was, at least. Because we're told that on Easter, King Peda was killed through the machinations of his wife. Now, why was this done on Easter? We're not sure. But as far as I can tell, you generally should keep your head down on Easter if you lived in Anglo-Saxon Britain. You had murders, assassinations, it's just a mess. Hell, even if you talk about Easter, that tends to cause strife, as was proven with Augustine's meeting with the British bishops. Easter is just bad luck. And this was back before Cadbury's eggs, so basically, there was no upside. Just strife, violence, and a day celebrating the fact that the Messiah is dead and has left Earth. It's just kind of a bummer. So yeah, until the British chocolate industry really started to get into the spirit of it, Easter just seems like it was a good time to hide out. So King Peta was dead, having ruled for less than a year. And that was probably not the wisest of choices, because even Bede, who was firmly in Team Northumbria, thought Peta was the cat's meow. Peta was pretty damned beloved. So having him killed on Easter was probably not the best choice to make if you wanted to be winning any popularity contests. But on the other hand, while some kingdoms did seem to approach kingship as a sort of popularity contest, it doesn't seem like the line of Ida tacked in that direction. They opted for more, you know, 
of an iron fist and ruthlessness. And in Oswiu, we see the growing culture of the Northumbrian ruling dynasty come to its ultimate conclusion. All the traits that made Northumbrian rulers brutal and powerful were condensed in this man. You know, when I think about it, he's a bit like a boss battle at the end of a video game. You know, where you think you've got the boss beat, but then he changes into his final form and just hands you your ass. Well, Oswiu was sort of the line of Ida's final form. And now that Peta was dead, he was free to install his own rulers over the people of Mercia. Northumbrian domination was complete. The Mercian dynasty was ousted from power, and the supporters of the victorious Oswiu were moving in quickly to fill the power vacuum. And so now, Oswiu was truly ascendant. He ruled Bernicia and all of Mercia. And so tens of thousands of individuals were under his rule. And he had sub-kings sending him tributes. And his son ruled the era. King Oswiu was rich and powerful on a scale that's hard to imagine. However, this is Oswiu we're talking about. And while he might have been happy to put his son on the throne of Deira, he was probably also troubled by the fact that that same son was a bit cozy with the recently deceased Peta. They were close friends. So, things might have been getting tense in the house of Oswiu, especially around the holidays. And frankly, the additional wealth and power came with additional problems. Like a great man once said, mo money, mo problems. And in 657, Oswiu's nephew, King Talorgan of Pictland, had died. Now, Talorgan was Ainfrith's son. Do you remember Ainfrith? He was the stupid son of Aethelfrith who went to King Capwathlin and tried to act like a king and negotiate peace, even though he didn't have a kingdom. And Capwathlin was in a killing mood, and so he put this non-king to death. Well, before Ainfrith apparently was dealing with a bout of suicidal thoughts, or just raw stupidity, and all but begged Capwathlin to kill him, he had a son with a Pictish princess. And that son ended up becoming the king of Pictland. And his name was Talorgan. And overall, that had been pretty good for Oswiu. Because from everything that we're told, it looks like Pictland was subject to Oswiu and was paying him tribute. But in 657, his nephew had died, and King Carnate IV had taken the throne. And this was a problem for Oswiu because he didn't have a familial connection to this new king. And it's quite possible that Oswiu found himself embroiled in a struggle to once again secure overlordship over Pictland. Because much like Penda, it looks like Oswiu was forming an empire. Only, in Oswiu's case, he was going one step farther by ousting the ruling class of Mercia and replacing them with people loyal to his position. Well, like we talked about in the stratification and concentration of power episodes, these dynasties tend to be rather jealous of their power and don't give it up lightly. And this move seems to have really irked the ruling class of Mercia. Specifically, it bothered three thanes. Imin, Apha and Aidbert. And despite his ruthlessness, Oswiu was not invincible. And he was a bit overstretched, trying to establish complete control over Mercia through the placement of his new ruling class, and also quite possibly distracted by a fight with Pictland. And so, in this environment, we're told that three Mercian nobles 
Imen, Apha, and Aidbert, grabbed the last son of the great King Penda and hid him somewhere in the kingdom. Now, that might seem a bit cowardly or unkingly, right? I mean, kings should be out there leading battles and being out in front, not hiding somewhere while others do the fighting for you. However, you have to consider the situation that they were in here and who they were up against. The line of Ida was aware of the power of dynasties, and since at least Aethelfrith, they had demonstrated that they were entirely willing to go to extreme lengths to wipe out entire rival bloodlines. So if Penda's son was easily found, you could be sure that he would be the sole target of Oswiu's warriors. Hell, Oswiu had already successfully sent an assassin to kill his own cousin after peace was established. So do you think he'd even hesitate over this kid? So needless to say, this was an extremely dangerous time to be related in any way to Penda. So yeah, they took him and hid him far away. Though exactly where isn't detailed. It was probably that secret. Bede probably never even found out. And once the crown prince was safe, they went to war. What we're told is fairly Spartan. I know, you're shocked for this period in time. And what we're told is essentially that they expelled the officers of the foreign king. But I imagine that it was somewhat more dramatic than that. We're talking about a complete regime change and an ouster of oppressors and a reassertion of power by the ruling dynasty of Mercia. It's hard to imagine that this was a simple eviction, but rather it strikes me like it would be significantly more bloody. Perhaps something along the lines of a coordinated strike against the foreign officials and any collaborators. And then any leftover who caught wind of what was happening and arranged a sort of resistance would have ended up meeting battle against the enraged Mercians. Ultimately, though, we just don't have any record of exactly what happened. But given the bad blood between these kingdoms and the shameful way in which the Northumbrians had King Peta killed, I just have a hard time imagining that the Mercians would have been inclined to just let Oswiu's men leave peacefully. But whatever the case, the rebellion was a success. Oswiu and his supporters lost control of Mercia. And once the ruling class was back in control, they brought the last son of Penda, Wolf Hera, out of hiding and proclaimed him king of Mercia. And Wolf Hera translates to Wolf Army. Yeah, apparently this was back when people were naming their kids with the same degree of forethought that an adolescent boy puts into his Xbox handle. I mean, seriously, Wolf Army? And that dig does seem shockingly appropriate, not just for the names that were coming out of this era, but also for the culture. I mean, look at the Werons, the king's psychopathic peacocks. They were naming their swords things like Battle Light, and rather than getting something useful like, oh, I don't know, helmets, they were tricking out their swords with the shiniest things they could find. How is that any different than getting a light-up keyboard rather than a new video card for your gaming computer? Flashy, tacky, and a little bit short-sighted. You know, there's a lot of video game references in this one, isn't there? Anyway, gaming stuff aside, I stand by my statement. This name thing is kind of hilariously adolescent. So, Wolf Army, Wolf Hera, despite the clear disadvantage of his name, he was now King of Mercia, and right away, he installed a new Bishop of Mercia, because he was Christian. And this bishop was a man by the name of Trumhera, which translates to strong army. Do you see what I mean about these names? 
Anyway, in the space of days to weeks, Wolf Hera had gone from an outlaw living in hiding to a king who ruled and collected food rents from over 12,000 households. Not only that, but the Mercian leadership rallied around this king, as did the people. And that was a big problem for Northumbria, because while Penda was certainly a great war leader, ultimately, it was his war bands that brought him victory in battle. And now, many of those same war bands were King Wolf Harris. Dislodging him from the throne wouldn't be easy, and it's unlikely that he would fall for the same sort of ambush tactics that his father had. So Oswiu had been pretty much tossed out on his ear, and was once again only the king of Bernicia. And if you learned anything about Oswiu, it's probably the fact that he didn't seem overly interested in being just the king of Bernicia. And this probably made his son, King Alfrith of Deira, rather nervous. And if it didn't, it should have. Seriously, I know some of you have pretty rough backgrounds, but spare a thought for the poor family of King Oswiu. That was not a good place to be. And speaking of that family, in 660, Egric, the son of Oswiu who was so loved that when he was taken hostage, Oswiu didn't even hesitate to attack, even though that very likely could have ended with Egric's death. So yeah, father of the year here. Anyway, we're told that in 660, Egric of Northumbria was forced by his father to marry Aethelthrith, the daughter of the deceased King Anna of East Anglia. It's hard to divine exactly what Oswiu had in mind with this move, but it seems pretty clear to me that he was still working on establishing his empire and was working on building dynastic claims to East Anglia, and perhaps was also looking to firm up a potential alliance with the kingdom through this marriage, especially since they had both been aggrieved by Mercia, with both kingdoms having lost kings in battle with the Mercians. And the fact that this marriage happened so quickly after the Mercian Rebellion, and the fact that we don't have any records of a quick strike to dislodge King Wolf Hera from power, makes me think that King Oswiu was probably quite overstretched at this point in time, and that he, along with the other kingdoms in the east, were really nervous about the possibility of Mercia re-establishing their power. As an interesting side note, the same year that happened was the year that Bishop Egbert of Kent left, and became the Bishop of Paris. It had been about a half century since the conversion, and now we're seeing English bishops going to the continent and heading up bishoprics there. And it won't be long before we have English luminaries like Alcuin being so respected that they would be invited to the court of Charlemagne. So next time someone talks about this era as if it wasn't important, or that Britain was backwards or insignificant, you have my permission to kick them in the shins. Anyway, Let's get back to what the dynasties do best. Murder. So, sometime at around this point, we have King Sigebert Bonus. Seriously, King Sigebert Bonus. Now, to be fair, Bonus means the good, which isn't too bad of a name, I guess. But since we're making fun of names in this episode, I'm guessing you're wondering if Sigebert fits into this model of adolescent Xbox handles. Well, I'll let you decide. His name roughly translates to Magnificent Victory. Anyway, while most people call him King Sigebert the Good, I'm going to call him Bonus Sigebert, because it's more fun. So, Bonus Sigebert was one of the kings that came to visit Oswiu in earlier episodes, and ended up converting to Christianity sometime around 653. So all things considered, he was a pretty recent convert, only being Christian for around seven years. 
But despite being relatively new and also late to the party, upon his conversion, he became instrumental in spreading Christianity throughout Essex. Which was no small matter considering how thoroughly the religion had been kicked out of the kingdom following the death of King Aethelbert of Kent and King Sabert of Essex. You might remember, that was when Sabert's three pagan sons took over and just ejected all the Christians out of the kingdom. So yeah, this place was staunchly in the camp of Thunor and Woden. But under Bonus Sigebert's rule, it was now ostensibly Christian. And more importantly to Oswiu, it was friendly to Northumbria and the Northern Church. Anyway, Bonus Sigebert really did take to his new religion with surprising intensity. And the story I'm about to relate to you comes from Bede, and considering Bonus Sigebert's conversion and Bede's perspective, we need to keep his potential bias in mind, because it's possible that, like all histories from this era, Bede wasn't as interested in facts as he was in truth, meaning that he was almost certainly focusing upon a moral. But here's what he told us. So, there were two brothers, and they were somehow related to Bonus Sigebert, and were land-holding nobles, probably thanes. We don't know exactly how they were related because we aren't even told their names, but Barbara York does suggest that the brothers might have been Swithhelm and Swithfrith. And she partially bases this on the fact that Swithhelm was next in the line of succession. But unfortunately, we just aren't given details, so that is purely speculation. But we do know that one of the brothers was excommunicated by Bishop Ked. And he was excommunicated for being unlawfully married. Now, exactly what was unlawful about the marriage is not specified, but given the Anglo-Saxon habit of marrying their stepmothers, I could hazard a guess. Anyway, excommunication was a really big deal. I mean, no one could eat with them, they weren't even allowed to enter his house. It pretty much cut you entirely out of society. But Bonus Sigebert, being extremely bonus, decided to disregard the excommunication and accept an invitation to the brother's house. And don't forget that this was back in the days when kings would travel around and accept hospitality at various homes within their kingdoms as they collected their rent. So despite the excommunication, Bonus Sigebert was on his way. And Bishop Ked apparently heard about this because he intercepted the king and tried to stop him. Sigebert begged for forgiveness and prostrated himself before the bishop, but he would not be dissuaded from seeing his excommunicated family member. We aren't told exactly why he wouldn't be dissuaded. Maybe this was politics, he needed the Thanes on his side. Or maybe it was just really, really forgiving. He did take to this religion very staunchly. But whatever the reason, this really did not sit well with the bishop. And so Ked, in keeping with the Augustinian tradition, made a threatening prophecy, which frankly sounds more like a curse to me. And the prophecy was this. The king would die in the brother's house. Now, we don't know what Bonus Sigebert said in response. For example, we aren't told if he said, Wow, that is really dramatic and more than a bit of an overreaction. Are you low on blood sugar? I think we've got a candy bar with us. But whatever he said, we do know what he did. He went on his way and stayed with the brothers. And there, he was killed. According to Bede, the brothers killed Bonus Sigebert because they hated his forgiving nature. But to me, that sounds much less like fact and much more like trying to tie things up into a moral. In this case, the moral is, 
don't be so forgiving that you disobey the clergy and spend time with excommunicated people. And speaking of disobedience to the clergy, what is with these bishops cursing fellow Christians? Bonus Sigebert seems like he was a good and pious king. The British bishops were good and pious men who just disagreed on political matters, haircuts, and the date of Easter. So did Ked and Augustine really need to go and curse them? It just seems a bit hard. And I wonder if Bede felt the same way, because he really did his best to spin the curse by saying that the conclusion of the prophecy slash curse resulted in the king being even more meritorious, because it atoned for his failure to obey and came as a result of his piety. And that sounds like some pretty heavy spin to me. But he was killed. So the question is why? Well, if you look at the politics of the time, there are a couple other possibilities for this murder. First, naturally, there are religious tensions. We aren't told if the brothers were Christian, but given the nature of the unlawful marriage, the refusal to end the marriage at the bishop's demand, and the subsequent excommunication, my guess is they probably weren't Christian, or if they were, they were Christian in name only. And given the rising prominence of this new god, the fact that the bishop was trying to break up their family, and that this was all happening because Bonus Sigebert had converted, well, you can't help but wonder if they decided to take matters into their own hands. This wouldn't be the first or last time that regicide would occur on religious grounds, after all. You could also look at the larger political world that they were a part of. And they were part of the ruling dynasty and nobles themselves, so they would have been well aware of what was going on in the kingdoms around them. And so they certainly would have known that Northumbria, and King Oswiu in general, was something of a problem for the other kingdoms of the Heptarchy. And Bonus Sigebert was very much in Oswiu's pocket. So perhaps this was an explicit rejection of Northumbrian power. After all, this was happening at right around the same time that Mercia was throwing off their shackles as well. So now would be the time to make a move, if they wanted to make one. And we do see that Northumbria was less involved with the politics and religious matters of Essex immediately following the murder. And instead, Essex started to get cozier with the neighboring kingdom of East Anglia. So maybe that was a factor in this. Anyway, so now King Swithhelm reigned over Essex. And upon taking the throne, he traveled to East Anglia, converted, and was baptized by Bishop Ked, the same bishop who threatened Bonus Sigebert. Things were changing in Essex. But while that's interesting for Essex, it's more important for our story of Oswiu, because his power was certainly starting to weaken. Mercia had rebelled. His nephew in Pickland was dead. And now his ally in Essex had been murdered. His empire was definitely starting to develop cracks. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us at any of the communities. You can find links to all of them, as well as other neat little side things, at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Just head over there and have a poke around. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>